This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is at bottom. Welcome, everyone, back for another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. My name's Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. Kelly Turner, not a doctor. So, guys, we're doing uh, something a little bit. We did do the disclaimer, right? We did. We're going to run the disclaimer. Did we do that? We did. We've had some technical issues today. Katie Turner, I mean, Katie Turner. Katie Turner is not here, but Katie Givens is doing a fantastic job over on the board. We had some technical issues, but we've got those figured out now, we think. Yes. Mediocre technical person over here. But <laughs> oh, we we're all mediocre at we're this, right? We're experts at everything we do. Exactly. Um, so, guys, uh, before we get started, Colby Abernathy, we, you know, we did the entire month of May, we spent on the Murdochs yes. up in South Carolina, yes, and uh, Colby reached out to me just uh, a few days ago and reminded me, right as the news hit the fan, mm-hmm. as it were, that Alec Murdoch has yes. been indicted on two counts of murder. Apparently, he has been accused of murdering his wife, mm-hmm. Maggie, and his younger son, Paul. Yes. and ha- That's what a development. Evidence- you were telling me that there was a little bit of evidence that they had. Well, that, of course, they have evidence. Yeah, there. well, there, there's some blood splatter, some high impact, I think is the right phrase for that, blood splatter on what Alec was wearing that night as if to indicate that blood came in a hurry at his shirt. Ah, okay. And also, there are, there's some cell phone information that indicates that Alec was in that immediate area where Maggie and Paul were shot within minutes of that murder. And his alibi was something completely, out. yes. Yeah. He correct. said he was gone to check on his mother and he was returning from that. And when yeah. he got back, he found the two of them dead. And yes. what you're saying is they have some evidence and what they have released so far are two things. But they're not. Yeah, their story's not lining up. They're going to keep it close to the chest, of course. But some new developments, and he has now been indicted for the murder of his wife and his son. And I'm guessing that his seven million dollar bond that he couldn't pay for anyway is probably going to go up or maybe be uh, withdrawn. Katie, how does that work? Can we just not give him a bond at this time? Can we just leave him in there? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could, but I mean, at some point, it's the price is there, yeah, and it's the same. Yeah, but who is going to? Bond him out. Yeah, no one. No one. He's facing 84 charges and 11 civil lawsuits already. So add two he's murder safer, charges to that. He's safer in jail. Yeah, some, yeah. Right now. Could very well be. And right. another friend of the show, Jonathan Ledbetter, he also sent me an, an article on this. So I think we everyone is several, watching this. Yeah, yeah, we had several people send us that through Facebook, um, Instagram. They texted us. We had a lot... Thank you to everybody. To who everyone who The listens. first one who sent it was Colby, he which was. is why he got the Bass. shout out. Yeah. And then the second one was Ledbetter, right? John, did you, Jonathan, Jonathan Ledbetter, Ledbetter was the name you said? Yeah. yeah. So they okay. get the shout outs. Yeah. Right. First come, first serve. First so come. that gets us caught up on what we did back in May. Okay. And now we're going to move along to, if you've 
if you're out there and you don't know who, I, I think our good friend Jake Graves does not know who Edmund Kemper is. I think I heard him say that earlier. Okay. Maybe just a few moments ago. There's probably a lot of folks who don't Maybe know yeah. Edmund Kemper. If you watched Mindhunter, you know who Edmund Kemper is. Whether you realize it or not, he's six foot nine, mm-hmm. about 300 pounds, and he plays prominently in season one of Mindhunter, which is a Netflix animated, uh, animated series, a Netflix documentary series about how the FBI came to create their behavioral sciences unit back in the early 80s. So I'm going to correct you just a little bit because it's yeah. not a documentary. It is You're right. a fiction. Fi- fi- it's, it's based on true events. Yeah, sort that's of, right. But it's, um, they've kind of filled in some plots there that were Yeah, they've added some true. characters. and yeah. It's and, based off the book with the same title, Mindhunter, yeah. by... Douglas, I think is his... John Douglas. John Douglas, mm-hmm. yeah. Who was one of those FBI profilers who interviewed Kemper yes. back in the day. And before they came along with the term serial killer, Edmund Kemper is the reason why the term serial killer exists. He was one of the very first people who turned out to be a serial killer that the FBI interviewed when they were building the behavioral sciences unit uh, at that time. And they learned a lot from him because one thing that Ed Kemper, he was very intelligent. They spent a lot of time talking to him. He was very easy to get to know. He was, he was very talkative. He described his crimes in great detail. We're going to do a little bit less than that on the show because some of it's uh, pretty uh, horrific. Uh, you would hear some terms such as rape, murder, torture, necrophilia, decapitation, matricide, and perhaps most obviously evil, if we went into the vocabulary of who Ed Kemper is, was. But you would also hear the terms intelligent, polite, likable, a gentle giant, and very soft-spoken. Mm-hmm. And, and that comes through in the Mindhunter series on Netflix. Contradictions like that made for that intriguing case, which was why the FBI wanted to sit down and interview him. And, and Kemper was more than willing to do that. In several different, uh, several different occasions, he sat down and talked to them uh, extensively about the crimes he committed. But to get to Ed himself, Ed was born on December the 18th, 1948. He has an older sister who is six years older than him and a younger sister, two years younger. His dad, Ed Kemper Jr., was a World War II veteran in the Special Forces. Ed and his father had a close relationship when Ed was a very young child. But Ed Jr., and I'm not going to get us uh, down in the rabbit hole on names. We're going to stick to calling Kemper, Kemper. But Ed was Ed Kemper the third. His okay, father's so Ed Kemper was, Jr. Dad was Jr. And his grandfather, and, and we'll get to him in a minute, was Ed Kemper Sr. Ed didn't really have a close relationship with his father because his father was gone a lot when Ed was a young child because Ed Jr. couldn't stand his wife, Ed Kemper's mother, Claire Nell. So, Clarenell is the guy we're talking about today. I'm a little confused on all the Kempers. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that already. Okay. So, the third. The Edmund third. Kemper the third's we're, mother was named. Clarenell. And she was married to his father. Ed Jr. Junior. Yes. And Ed Jr. was 6'8". He was a big guy himself. And Clarenell uh, was six feet tall. So, it wouldn't be any surprise to anyone that Ed Kemper eventually, by the time he was 21 years old, was 6'9", 300 pounds. And so his father hated his mother and never wanted to be home. He did not want to be around her. He said that he spent 369 days fighting on the front in World War II, and that was less stressful to him than living with Clarenell. Wow. So he was gone as much as he could. He spent a lot of time out in the Pacific in the years after World War II working on the atomic bomb test 
tests that went out and the Bikini Atoll and all those places out in the Pacific. He had rather be there, probably getting filled with radiation, than to be at home with his wife. We're just going to say Kemper was not around his father that much. His dad was gone a lot. And he always felt like there was a confrontational relationship, Kemper did, between his sisters, one older and one younger, and his mother and him. He felt like he was getting picked on a lot as a child. Dad wasn't around to defend him. When he was, when dad was around, he did defend him. In fact, at one point, Ed spent eight months sleeping in the basement, in the cellar of the house that they occupied. His dad is gone. He's intermittently in and out of their lives. But Clarinelle is afraid that Kemper is going to sexually molest his sisters. And so she puts him in the cellar of their house. And the only way to access that cellar is to remove the kitchen table from where it normally sits and open a trap door to go down into the cellar. When you get down into the cellar, there are two light bulbs on a string. One's in one end of the room, one's in the other end of the room. Every night as an eight-year-old boy, Kemper had to go down into that cellar, spend the night by himself with the door closed and the kitchen table replaced and figure it out for himself. That's terrifying for an eight-year-old. As you might imagine. Uh, Ed's younger sister tells a story about how she had a conversation with her mother once and her mother said that Kemper, by the age of two, seemed like there was something wrong with him. He felt rejected by his father. Mm-hmm. He felt rejected by his sister and his, his sisters and his mother. Felt like he was alone in the world. I'm not making excuses for what Kemper did. I'm just telling you maybe a little bit about the the process that turned him into the monster that he became. And this information doesn't just come from Kemper himself. His sister yes. says that this happened. That yes. Her name was, uh, and again, I'm, I don't want to get into a bunch of names. Her name was Aylin, A-L-Y-N-N, so a younger sister by two years. And Ed said at one point that she was the one person in his life that she could talk to at any time about anything mm-hmm. uh, and, and felt like he would keep her confidence. I'm not saying he admitted to anything, but felt like that he could really sit down and talk to his younger sister. They grew up playing together as children. So he felt closer to her than anyone. Ed's mother hated men. She did. And, and in particular, as, Ed, as Kemper got older and his father had moved out of the house and was gone forever at some point uh, in 58, he was a constant reminder to Clarinell of her failed marriage and the man that she despised. Yes. So another brick in the wall for why maybe Kemper ended up the way he did. He hated his mother. He said at one point that he knew when he was eight years old that he wanted to kill his mother. He had fantasies about killing his mother at the age of eight. So, yikes. And, and one more mention about his size. So, uh, Katie, let's start with you. Who is the bad guy from the Halloween movies? Is that Mike Myers? That is Michael Myers. Kelly, who is the bad guy from every Friday the 13th movie except the first one because that was the mom? That would be Jason Ford. That is correct. And think about those two. We've all seen those movies a hundred times. A huge lumbering figure. There's no way he can outrun a little girl through the woods, but somehow he always ends up there. And he's got a machete and he's overpowering and he's overbearing and he's frightening. Hollywood didn't make that up. That was Ed Kemper. That's where they got those ideas. He, he is one of the reasons why those types of serial killers and haunting 
maniacal figures exist. I mean, the first Halloween came out in what, 78? I think so. Yeah. Sounds right. And then the first Friday the 13th, maybe 81, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Ed Kemper had been incarcerated at that point for about three or four years. So that's where they got those ideas. So that's where some of that came from. He's as scary as you think. Mm -hmm. But he, at one point, was an eight-year-old boy who was terrified. Of being left alone in the basement? Because of his mother and had fantasies of killing his mother at eight years old. Yes, that is correct. So, a lot of uh, weird things happened to Ed and his little sister when they were growing up. I say weird. Those are her words, not mine. They used to like to play a game called Electric Chair where they would strap Ed into the big recliner and he would pretend to be electrocuted. I mean, that sounds like fun, Scott. What's your problem? I had an Atari then, so (laughs) that's my problem with that. I played uh, Hungry Hippos. Hungry, Hungry Hippos. I had one of those. (laughs) Do you still have it? No. You still have it, but all the marbles are gone. I don't have it. Your marbles have all been gone for a long time. Eileen said that, uh, and I say, I, I, I hope I'm saying her name right. I think it's Aileen. It it's probably Eileen. Let's do Eileen. Uh, she said that sometimes she remembers as a child that Kemper screamed in his sleep. They could hear him screaming from the basement. Well, he was a little boy and he was terrified in the dark. Correct. Basement. And he's, has, he's a, he has these uh, thoughts of rejection. His father's not around. Mm-hmm. Everybody's ganging up on him all of the time. Mm-hmm. There's a story that she tells about how when he was in second grade, he told her that he wanted to kiss his second grade teacher. And she said, well, go ahead. And Ed said, Kemper said, I would have to kill her first. So even at that young age, that's, that's, a, that's a red flag. Something's not lining up exactly right. And another story, and this will make sense later when we get to uh, part two of this episode. There was an episode when Kemper was about nine years old, and Dad had come home for a short visit. Ed had two pet chickens. And Dad decided they were going to have chicken for dinner that night. And so... Kemper watched his father chop the heads off of two chickens, and then his mother cooked those chickens and forced him to eat it for dinner. This will make sense later. Or not. It doesn't make any sense, but you'll see where I'm going with this uh, later. There was another episode where Kemper, as a young boy, was in a record store after his family had moved to Helena, Montana. After Dad left, Mom took the kids, moves to Helena, Montana, takes a job. She was a pretty sharp lady. She, she always had a career. She was uh, an assistant to the provost at a university at one point. So not a dumb lady, just not a very compassionate lady, uh, at least to hear Kemper tell it. So he goes to a record store and he sees a magician put on an act with a fake guillotine where I'm not sure exactly how it worked, but a potato got cut in half and the young girl's head who was in the guillotine right beside it her neck remained intact. And Kemper remembers thinking, well, it sure would have been cool if her head had come off like the potato came off. That's at nine in a bookstore in Helena, Montana. So this sibling rivalry between Kemper and his sisters intensifies as they all get older. And speaking of the guillotine, Ed decides that the best thing he can do to get back his sisters at at his sisters every time they uh, offend him in some way like children get offended by their sibling, is to cut off the heads of their Barbie dolls and cut off the hands of their Barbie dolls. 
That's how he gets back at them for whatever slight he feels he suffered at the hand of his sisters. And then at age 10, Kemper, with one swing of a bayonet, according to his sister, took off the cat's head. And then... Did, and, and that was intentional. Like, he meant to do that. He wasn't just yes. swinging it. He was mad at the cat because he the cat was the his cat. sister's friend okay. and okay. not his own. Yep. He could not train the cat the way he wanted to, so if you can't have it, or if I can't have it, no one can have it. Okay. Uh, and he put that decapitated cat's head on a pole and kept it in his room for a short amount of time until his mother found it. There's a lot of red flags here. Uh, we're running out of red flags. Mm-hmm. Uh, at age 13, Kemper shot and killed a neighbor's dog, which pretty much pissed off the entire neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They didn't really like Kemper very Did much he after say that. Why? Why he shot the dog? Uh, Whatever. Yeah. I had a gun and there was a dog. Did the dog try to attack him or anything? Or was this, uh, my my question is, was he offended by the dog? Or did he just decide, I'm going to shoot the dog? I think he just thought. Okay. I'm just. I'm going to shoot this dog. Uh, And Kemper himself says, and here's a quote that I'll, I'm going to drop these in from time to time. Kemper says, and I quote, I always felt like a social outcast, never managed to find my place. I remained locked in the basement, so to speak. With my dark thought, I was fascinated by things that revolved around death, destruction, and evil. Those are Ed's, Ed Kemper's own words. Dad came home for a short visit at one point and eventually put a stop to the basement. He, he threatened Clarinelle and said, if you don't stop putting our son in the basement, I'm going to call the cops. So she got him out of the basement. We all know now that that didn't do anything. On Thanksgiving Day of 1963, at age 15, Kemper stole his mother's car, drove to Butte, Montana. And I did not see how far away that is from Helena, Montana. But he got on a bus and went to California to try and find his father. He was tired of living with his mother, living with his mother. He wanted to go and see if dad would have anything to do with him. And dad did for a moment. And he said later, Kemper did, that he left his house because he had this overwhelming desire to kill his mother. And that's at age 13. 15. I'm sorry, 15. Yeah, he's already 15 at this point. So dad let him stay with him for a while, but his dad's new wife was freaked out by Ed Kemper, as you might imagine. So there's some back and forth in, in these years who he's staying with. He stays with mom for a little while. He stays with dad for a little while. We get to Christmas time, and dad takes Kemper to his parents. So now we're to Ed Sr.'s house okay. in North Fork, California. It's, uh sparsely populated area, just farmhouses in the Sierra Madre, in the Sierra Mountain. And he drops his son off with his parents and leaves him. So Ed stays there for an entire year. He goes to school. The whole year he doesn't really make any friends, but everything goes okay. It turns out, according to Kemper, though, that grandma is worse than mom. Hmm. He says, grandma is going to undo all of the terrible things my mother did to me. She's going to show the world that my mother was a lousy parent, I'm going to be the pawn in this little game. Mm. So he's being played off between mom and grandma and their in-laws, so they never got along anyway, he says later. And the sister says, Ed was never allowed to bring friends home. He could not participate in any social activities at school. It sounds like I'm making an excuse for Kemper's behavior, and I'm not. I'm just trying to lay it out for you. Do you know if this is the same way she raised his father, um, Ed Kemper Jr.? 
I do not. Is this standard for her? Because if it is, Ed Kemper's father seems to be... He turned out okay. A functioning, productive member of society. Better than his son anyway. But we have Kemper, our Kemper, Ed the Third. Right. Who is now... It it just seems to me that mom is one thing. Locking him in the basement, all of that, that. That's not good. But how is it that grandma is now worse? And is she really, or is he just... That's how he's viewing well, it. That's kind of a, yeah. that's coming from Kemper. And that I don't trust it completely. I, I agree. Because now we're talking about a, a 14 or a 15 year old kid who's mm-hmm. got, a, who's going to give a lot more pushback yeah. to authority than an eight or a nine year old kid. It would just be interesting to know if she's treating him differently than she treated her own son. I, I totally understand. Yeah. And I know you don't have that information. I'm just, I don't, but I could make something up. <laughs> no, don't <do> <laughs> okay. Uh, but one thing that does happen, since he's out in this rural area, not really a lot going on, he does get a twenty two rifle, and Grandma and Grandpa say, hey, look, we'll give you a quarter for every rabbit you shoot and a dime for every gopher you shoot. Okay. So he's got a hobby. Yep. He's got a rifle and a hobby and a dog. That's all he's got out in the middle of North Fork, California, Okay. at age 15. He said that grandma was verbally abusive, that she was insistent on instilling her down-to-earth old-school values on him to show that she could fix what mom had broken. It sounds like she's just trying to... It sounds like she's a grandmother. Raise yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound like she's being mean. It sounds like she's trying to raise him because she's upset at the way... His life is that. going. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I totally agree. There's one example, though, when Kemper says he was out one evening, he was walking around in the yard and he saw his grandmother. She was an artist and a writer. She was talented. She was creative. So she was working on a sunset painting or something out in the yard. And Ed walked up behind her with his rifle and thought about killing her. But he didn't because he says, and here's another quote from Kemper, I didn't have the nerve. The gap was still too far. And I think what he meant by that, and I'm curious to know what you think, Kelly. I think the gap between his urges and his morality were still too far away from each other for him to be able to pull that trigger. He's going to get over that pretty soon. Yeah. But I think that's what he meant at the time. I think so, too. Yeah. So, I mean, that means he's a sociopath, right? Um, at this point Is it too early to diagnose? <laughs> Hang on. I've got some more evidence. Okay. Hold your thought. Okay. So, here we are on... He's, eight, he's 15 years old. He's age 15. This is August the 27th. 1964. Just about the time that the Beatles made their debut in America and began the movement that would come to define the next decade, Ed's going to miss most of this decade because he's going to be in a mental health facility. But this is the the youth counterculture movement of the 60s. Religious cults, the anti-war movement, communes, the sexual revolution. Ed's going to miss all of that. And this this becomes important later. Because he's about to go to jail. He's about to go to a mental facility for five years because that is the day that his grandmother, as he's on his way out the door to go shoot rabbits and gophers and birds, Ed loved to shoot birds and grandma did not like that. No birds, Ed, she said. And he had heard that a hundred times. And that day it was one time too many. So he walks out the screen door and she says, don't shoot any birds, guy. They called him guy when he was a kid. It doesn't matter because there's so many Eds. He spun around 
pointed the gun to the back of her head, pulled the trigger. She dropped dead on the dining room table. He shot her twice more in the back just for good measure. And then he grabbed a knife out of the kitchen and stabbed her a few times in the back just to make sure he was dead so she wouldn't suffer. Ed's work. And then he realized, well, hell, I've done it now. I've finally followed through. I've, I've killed my mother, only it wasn't my mother. I've killed my grandmother. And that's just about the time that Grandpa comes back from town. He's in the pickup truck. He's gone to the grocery store in the mailbox or the post office. And Ed's in the middle of a complete sociopathic breakdown right now, I think it would be safe to say. And he doesn't know what, he doesn't know what to do except to kill the other witness. And so when Grandpa waves at Kemper, he goes outside to help get the groceries out of the truck. And he waits until his grandfather's head is turned, and he shoots Grandpa in the back of the head. Kills him with one shot, drags him into the barn, washes off the truck and himself with the water hose, just in case the neighbors heard. They're, they're miles from the nearest neighbor, but just in case. That's several gunshot wounds or several gunshots in the air. Maybe some neighbor goes, hey, that sounds weird. So he tries to clean up, and then he panics. He's 15 years old. He's 6'4", 170 pounds, but he still is a kid. He's still 15 years old, and he panics. So he calls his mother. She's still in Helena, Montana. And mom says, well, you've done it now, son. Call the police and go sit on the front porch and wait for them to get there. And so they both call. Ed's mother calls. Kemper calls. A couple of hours later, the local police department shows up. And Ed is taken into custody and quickly admits to shooting and killing both of his grandparents because he says, I wanted to see what it would be like to shoot grandma. 15. Hmm. Kemper says about that episode, quote, my back hit the wall and I came out screaming and kicking and shooting. I was raging inside. Unquote. So this was the turning point. This was it. This was, yeah. Uh, the next day's Madeira, California newspaper had a headline that read, 15-year-old kills both grandparents. And somehow somebody got a quote from Kemper. And his quote was, I was just mad at the world. A psychiatrist said this was Kemper avenging the rejection of his parents by killing whoever he could get his hand on. And so he did. Uh, a couple of months later, Kemper is sentenced to the California Youth Authority because uh, he is 15. And so they send him to a, a mental hospital that we have talked about before on this show. You heard it when we talked about Zodiac, Atascadero. The Atascadero State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, it was called at the time. I'll bet they've changed that sign out front since. Mm -hmm. A little uh, not so politically correct. But whatever they call it now, it's still there. And Ed was there for five years with 1,600 hardcore, mentally unbalanced inmate, 800 sex offenders, and at least three dozen murderers. And he was, the way that a Tescadero was set up, you get the run of the place. They keep you locked in from the outside, but inside, they have, they break down by cell blocks and they elect representatives and you can uh, protest if you don't like the flavor of the coffee, all 15. kinds of things. And he's 15, but he's, they put him there because he's, He's an so adult big. in size. But he was determined to be insane. Terminology at the time. The terminology at the time was uh, paranoid schizophrenic. That, of the, that was his diagnosis. That was the diagnosis du jour mm. at that time. 
If they didn't know what was wrong with you, they just labeled you as that. Uh, some of the psychiatrists said that he was absolutely uh, unstable. But the longer he was there, the more they started to think that Ed was salvageable as a human being. He was determined because to have he, a... Because at the same time, Ed's likable. Very likable, If you can believe that. After, yeah. after we said all this, he's, Ed's also likable. Yeah, watch that first uh, season of uh, Mindhunter on Netflix because they, I saw an interview with the actor who portrayed Ed Kemper in that first season and some in the second season. He said that it was eerie to play the guy. And when he saw him later, when, when he watched the show, he's like, yeesh, it was so much like the videos that I watched that it mm-hmm. scared me. So at least by the actor's own admission, he nailed Ed Kemper. Yeah, you can third. Google videos and, and watch these I, interviews. Yes. With, he's uh, very likable. I mean, if, yeah. you, if you didn't know what he was talking about, he yeah. just, he seems like a nice guy. I also think that he's full of shit sometimes. I'm Not sure that's, time, well, if you're a sociopath, sometimes. you must have that capacity, right? To, yeah. to yeah. fool people. Because that's what we're getting to at a Tescadero. Yeah. Because it seems like, first of all, they give him an IQ test. He's 145. Smarter than 99% of the population. Mm-hmm. A certified evil genius, if you will. Uh, he was later diagnosed during his time there. He was there for five years to suffer from avoidance personality disorder. But they also said that he showed no evidence of bizarre thinking. So he is on a fast track to get out. Mm. Because in addition to those things that I just told you, Katie, go ahead. Can you be schizophrenic and not have bizarre thinking? Is that a thing? Um I don't think that's the diagnosis they settled on, though. I think you're right. I think, if they had settled on that uh, one, it would, okay. yeah. no, not really. Yeah, I think so there's they some, just started I out mean, with it, schizophrenia, and then they worked more. That was kind of the trash yeah. can diagnosis. Gotcha. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. But I think they, they went more for this avoidance, and he's telling them what they want to hear. And so that's where you yes. get that he doesn't have this bizarre... He's able to charm them very much. So. That's absolutely correct. Because by the time he's 19, Kemper is like an assistant in the psychology lab at a Tescadero. Mm-hmm. Which is, is a symptom, <laughs> being charming and uh, likable and all that, of uh, what used to be um, a psychopath or a sociopath, which is now called antisocial personality disorder. Okay. Which does not mean that you can't socialize with other people. You're actually very good at it. That's a perfect... I mean, that's what it sounds like. If only you'd been at a Tescadero and... No. Okay. No, I'm, I'm very... I'm not... No. Gotcha. But yeah, that's exactly right, uh, Kelly, because he, he's helping them to hand out the personality test, the, the mental test that other patients are subjected to when they are uh, entered he's into the facility. personality tests. He is scoring them, handing them out, <laughs> and filing them away. He sees every answer that every... Nut job. Brilliant. Can I say nut job? I mean, it, it really is very smart on his part to, to do this because now he knows exactly and what to say to them. I want to know what you think about that because there's one sequence in one of the books that I read where the guy who was in charge of a Tescadero at the time said, you know, Ed was not a sociopath because he was a good worker. And, and a, hang on, hang on. Because he said a sociopath would have an ulterior motive for being a good worker. Of course, he had an ulterior motive. He was trying to get the answers to all of the tests so he could pass the tests and get out on his 21st birthday, which is exactly what happened. Is it, I don't know what HIPAA laws were at the time. Direct, uh, there was no HIPAA law. It's a time. direct violation of that nowadays. You can't yeah. see the results of someone else's psychological tests. Yeah. Well, not, no HIPAA then. Uh, but Kemper himself said, I have a lot of fond memories of a Tescadero. 
I grew up there. And he did in a, in a, in a large sense. I think he's trying to be funny there. <laughs> well, maybe he did, or maybe he was. But one of the other things that was pointed out in one of the stories that I read is that somebody like Kemper, who is surrounded by all these sex offenders and murderers and rapists and child molesters, he finds out everything that they did wrong mm-hmm. so that if he ever does get back out, he knows what not to do. And that yeah. includes you don't commit a crime against someone that you know. You don't commit a crime against someone in your neighborhood. And you don't leave witnesses. It kind of seems like he already knew that, but yeah. killing grandpa. But but then he sat there yeah. and, and turned himself in. So. Right. But he kind of already knew that. But he's also having access to all of the charts of all of these people. And they're going into great detail with these psychiatrists about the things that they've done. So he's able to read that and probably fantasize and all that kind of stuff. A lot too. of that. And all of this is, uh, we'll find out later, a lot, everything that Ed did was basically sexually motivated because he grew up, he had never been on a date until the day, uh, on the day he got released from Atascadero, which was his birthday, his 21st birthday on December the 18th, 1969. He'd never been on a date. He was 21 years old. He was way behind. This is five months after Neil Armstrong walked on the moon and four months after the Manson family murders. So that's what everybody in the world is talking about. Ed has missed all of this because he's been incarcerated at the Tescadero for five years. But he's declared cured. He's given a GED and he's out in the world. They did a bang up job on him. Nice. So Ed says about his release, one last quote from Ed. When I got out on the street, it was like being on a strange planet. People my age were not talking the same language. I had been living with older people for so long that I was an old fogey. And he was. He was in with 1,600 adults. Mm-hmm. So everybody his age seemed like a complete weirdo to him. Now, it's, you know, it's the hippie generation. And, and some people will tell you that the Manson murders in August of 69 were kind of the beginning of the end of the counterculture movement in the country. I mean, that was kind of, okay, we let it go too far. You know, with with Manson and Sharon Tate and all that stuff. But they did get one thing right at a Tescadero. They said, whatever you do, don't let Ed go live with his mother. Guess what? He goes home and lives with He goes home and lives with his mother. They turned him right back into the streets. And now he's 21 years old. He's six foot nine, 285 pounds. He's never been on a date with a girl. He needs to connect with women, but he's got two problems. He doesn't know how to do that. He's never had sex with a woman. And he spent the last five years incarcerated in a mental facility because he killed his grandparents. That's not really first date conversation. No. no. Or 100th date conversation. No, that's not. No. Yeah. So he has a problem. And he knows it. And he ends up, after a few months in a halfway house and 18 months with his mother, he's right back, basically, mentally, where he started. Because she's... She's going to call out everything he does wrong. She's going to, she doesn't like men, men, as I said. Especially not him. He's now a fully grown man, rather large man. She treated me like I was still 15, but I had been treated like an adult for the past five years at a Tascadero. I flourished there. I did well. I had what I hoped would be a bright future and we immediately had problems. Mm -hmm. And probably he couldn't hand his mother a line and her believe it she's gonna not believe anything he says her bullshit filter is at 100 percent. yeah it's it's probably the i'm guessing the complete opposite of the doctors there they're believing everything he's saying she's believing nothing yeah there's no happy medium 
So that's, yeah, that's kind of how that happened. Uh, so he, he's back with his mother now in Santa Cruz. That's where his mom lives because she moved there from Helena, Montana when he was incarcerated at a Tescadero to be near it. So mom's trying to be a mom, at least to some extent, but she's mm-hmm. got a job now at the University of Santa Cruz. And that's a brand new university. It was built in 1965. Uh, they started experimenting with satellite universities in California at the time. And this was one of those that they built. And what really happened, Santa, uh, Santa Cruz was a, it was a boardwalk community. It was a retirement community. It had uh, an amusement park and cabins that folks from, this, uh, from the San Francisco area visited during the summer months. But when they built UC Santa Cruz, it changed Santa Cruz. It turned it into a college town. And college students at the time were the hippie counterculture generation that I'm describing. So one of the things that they brought with them was this proliferation of hitchhiking. Mm-hmm. Everybody hitchhiked at the time. It was safe. It was fun to a lot of people. And the, a lot of girls, everything's changed socially. Girls are going to college now. They're not just going to get a, a home economics degree. They're going to become doctors and lawyers. And, and this is one of the places where that movement really gets started to begin with in California in the early 70s. And Ed can't believe it. He's driving up and down the road. He's wrecked a couple of motorcycles. And he got a, an insurance settlement that was enough to buy a 1968 Ford Galaxy. That's a two-door big car with a black felt roof or a black vinyl roof, I guess, right? And he's, dri- he's got nothing else to do because his arm's in a cast because he broke his arm on one of those motorcycle accidents. So there's a big plate in his arm. He's in a cast. So he's got nothing to do except spend whatever's money, whatever money is left from not buying the car, driving up and down the coast of California in these cities, all these college towns, hitchhikers everywhere, a lot of them single attractive females. And Ed has no idea what to do with a single attractive female, but he's not going to let that stop. All right. So what does he do? Well, for over a year, according to Ed's description later, he drives up and down that road and he picks up hitchhikers and nothing happens. He's just. Just bored. takes them where they want to go. He takes them where they want to go, and he drives all over the place. He says he drives thousands and thousands of miles and picks up hundreds and hundreds of hitchhikers. But he's always got in the back of his head, these uppity bitches think they're better than me. They're just like my mother. She's out of college. They're college students. One of these days, I'm going to get up the nerve, and I'm going to do something about it. So let's say Ed has an issue with women. I think that is very safe to say. So he has moved into an, uh, into an apartment with his mother in a place called Aptos, California. It's a suburb of Santa Cruz. And of course, they begin fighting and arguing immediately. And he, at one point, explains to one of his neighbors, hey, look, don't freak out. Don't call the cops. This is just how my mother and I communicate with each other. No big deal. But he says later, that's the one furnace they should have never put me back in. But he's an adult, so I don't know how much that's her fault. Come on now, Ed. You're you're a grown man at this point. You you should get get your own. Well, he eventually gets a job with the California Highway Department and moves out of his mother's apartment, but he still feels like these advantaged upper class females feel like they're superior to him. He's just got a lot of anger towards women, just a lot. It's building, it's building, it's building. Yes, that is correct. So Ed starts to pick up these hitchhikers, and he's also buying guns and knives which he can get away with because he's had his juvenile record 
expunged. Because of it, yep. Mm-hmm. So he goes, he jumps through several hoops that we will talk about next week to get his record expunged so he can get away with buying weapons that normally he wouldn't be allowed to purchase because he killed his grandparents when he was 15. Mm-hmm. But they buried that, and so he's fine. Clean record. For now. And Kemper was still, I guess I mentioned this, he was still kind of the conservative square that he was when he went in. I mean, he still cut his hair short, wore his glasses, and wore contemporary clothing. Nobody else his age, nobody else 21 years old in California is dressed like it. No, and that's just further adding to this, to this. The pressure cooker? The pressure cooker. Oh, okay. I was going to say refrigerator, but I didn't feel back. like that's okay. what you wanted me to say. Said, <laughs> so this is just adding to this pressure cooker type scenario That's it. for Ed. That's he's, exactly he's right. He's getting angrier and angrier and angrier. Yeah. He doesn't fit in. He knows how old he is. He knows how old they are. He sees the the difference. Mm-hmm. Ed's just, he's he's angry. And he, go, he does go out on one date. He gets a date with one girl and it's not very long into the date. He takes her to a John Wayne movie and then takes her to Denny's. Oh. And it doesn't take her very long to figure out that she wants to get out of that situation and so he never hears from her again good for her so his first attempt at normality was a failure yeah. at least can you in imagine that i mean i have no idea what he probably talked about yeah on this first date whatever it was she got the hint pretty fast she said yeah i'm not ya. doing this so ed begins to consider the possibility of picking up one of these girls and killing her and then raping her because he is too afraid of a live woman to try and have sexual relations. So his solution is to kill her and then have sex with her dead body. There's the necrophilia that I mentioned earlier. Okay. So he starts, he, he, in his car, he puts all of the things that he thinks he might need. He puts blankets in the trunk. He puts blankets in the back seat. He has rope. He has knives. He has handcuffs. He has guns. And he's driving around. I mean, Ed, you're you're six eight. You're you're how how much six eight two eighty? Yeah, but it makes it a lot less work if you have yeah, a gun pointed right. to someone. Right. I guess is what he's thinking. Is. But it's a long time. He 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 calls them test runs. He will go out and pick somebody up, and he takes them right to where they want to go. But in his mind, he's like, "What would I have had to do to finish?" This task, if I wanted to have so done it on that one, he's the fantasies. He calls he's, them test runs. He's okay. doing these fantasies. Yeah. He's having these sexual fantasies about what he would have done to that girl or or okay. these girls or whatever. He gets a decal from his mother to attach to his car that indicates that he is a student at the University of Santa Cruz. It's called an A sticker. It's it's a red square with the letter A in it, and everybody who's a student at Santa Cruz knows that that means that you're a member of the faculty or your student, which makes people think that it's safe to get into the car with oh, this yeah. person. Mm-hmm. So eventually they will begin to tell co-eds, don't get into any car unless you see an A sticker. Of course, that's playing right into Ed's hands, but that doesn't happen yet. What happens first is on Sunday, May the 2nd, I'm sorry, Sunday, May the 7th, 1972, the first time Ed ever drove out of the driveway in his car and said, I'm going to kill somebody today. He did. And he picked up 18-year-old Marianne Pesh, and he picked up 18-year-old Anita Luchessa. Marianne Pesh was an experienced hitchhiker, I read. 
she had spent seven years hitchhiking her way across Europe as a younger person. Her parents moved there and lived there for several years, and so they kind of turned her loose in Europe. So she was a very experienced hitchhiker. Anita, not so much, but they were friends. They were Fresno State students who had been to Santa Cruz for the weekend, and they wanted to go to Stanford. They were standing on the side of the road holding up a sign that said San Francisco, and Ed pulled over. Ed said later that Anita jumped right into the car. I was ready to jump right into the car, the less experienced of the two hitchhikers. Marianne was very suspicious of it. Just immediate. Immediate. And so he started to do what ended up being something that worked out really well for him. He would act like he was agitated, like he was ready to go. He would check his watch and tap his foot and, hey, if you guys don't want to ride, don't worry about it. I'm out of here. And a lot of times, Ed found out pretty quickly. They're like, hey, we've got him pulled over. He's probably safe. Let's get in the car and go with it. Well, the fact that he's not trying to coerce them into the car, he's like, are you exactly. in or are you out? I'm gone. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So on Sunday, May the 7th, 1972, Marianne and Anita climbed into a dusty banana yellow 1969 Ford Galaxy and were never seen alive again. And we will tell you what happens to those girls and the rest of the victims of the co-ed killer in next week's episode of True Crime on Easy Street. Oh, thanks. That's sweet. <laughs> There was some applause. My for first you. ever oh, round of applause. So and we do have a live studio audience tonight, so that that stands to reason. They're excited to be here. Um, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Leave us a, a five star review or keep it to yourself. If you give us a five star review on Apple Podcast and you and you write something, then we know that it's you and we can give you a shout out. Visit true crime on easystreet.com for all of our information. Uh, okay. We left anything out? That's it. Good night, everybody.